Hey everyone, welcome to City Church OTR's Sermons Podcast. Here you will find all of the sermons and teachings that are given at our Sunday services. We also have our original City Church OTR podcast, which has more conversations, interviews, and more interactive content. As always, we would love to meet you. Check out our Instagram to see what we're doing this week and our website, citychurchotr.com, to meet one of our pastors. Enjoy. If you are newer here, uh, then what you don't know is we're actually in the middle of a series through the book of Acts. And if you've been here for like two or three months, you're like, I don't think that's true. Actually, it is. <laughs> we stopped at the end of July. We did a couple other series, uh, a series called Crazy Faith, where we had a bunch of different people speaking, and then we just did that series, shared and talked about by design. But we are actually in the middle of a series through the book of Acts, and so we're going to pick that up. We got through uh, Acts 1 through 12 uh, from Easter to July. We're going to break up another chunk right now. We'll stop for Christmas, and we won't finish it until 2022. And here's why we chose to do uh, a long series through the book of Acts is because Acts is about the new church that came out of the resurrection and the, the life of Jesus. And, and we, as a new church, if you're new here, we're about 13 months old. We're still a very new church. We want to learn from the mistakes and the successes of that OG new church. We want to look at what they were doing, and we want to copy so much of what they were doing, not everything. We want to learn from the places that they went wrong, but we want to study an old church that was new, and we want to see, okay, where does that apply to us? And if so, uh, if you're not familiar with the book of Acts, or maybe you weren't here um, when we started the series, Acts has um, a thesis. It's in the first chapter. It's uh, verse 8, and this is Jesus speaking. This is one of the things Luke records right before Jesus ascends to heaven. And it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That's a big deal. And then he says, and you will be my witnesses. So here's kind of the mission of the church. I need you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And so as we've studied through Acts, we went uh, chapters 1 through 7, kind of the outline of Acts. is chapters 1 through 7. It's all about the expansion of the church in Jerusalem. So first part of that thesis is a check. And then 8 through 12, we saw it started to expand outside of a city because the church was just in one city, and it expanded to other places that had some kind of Jewish context, Judea and Samaria. This would have been people that had been praying for Messiah, and the news started to reach them that, hey, he has come, he is here, he's been crucified and resurrected. And now in chapter 13, we're starting kind of part three of, uh, and it takes up most of the book, it's where the gospel goes not just to Jerusalem, not just to Judea and Samaria, but to the ends of the earth. So we're in the ends of the earth part of that, and we're actually still living in that part right now because we are neither in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. We are now the ends of the earth. Because they did this part well, we actually get to gather here and uh, because the gospel is global. And we, we often think, and I fall into this all the time, man, the church is in such a bad spot. Actually, the church is doing really, really well. Maybe the American church isn't in a great spot, or maybe the American church is shrinking, but actually the church is growing. The church is taking ground. The church, through the resurrection of Jesus, is seeing expansion because this isn't just an American gospel. This is a global gospel that's been going for now 2,000 years. And so we're going to pick up, uh, we're going to read Acts 13 and 14 today. Uh, Paul, uh, who we met well, a few months ago, but just a couple chapters ago in the book, uh, Paul is a guy that started doing missionary journeys. We have three recorded in the book of Acts, and so we're going to do the whole first missionary journey today. 
which means, and I'm so sorry about this, um, that we're going to read a lot of the Bible. I know, I'm so, you came for the band, you came for the coffee. I'm so sorry, you're going to hear a lot of scripture this morning, starting in chapter 13, verse 1, where this whole thing kind of starts at a new church, not in Jerusalem, but in Antioch. It says, now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So we'll start in verse one. It's just a list of names, but usually in the Bible, when there's a list of names, there's something to pick up from that. And so it says that Barnabas was there. He's a Jew from Cyprus, so he's a Jew from a non-Jewish area. Simeon called Niger, so he's a Jew with a Roman name, but Niger means black skin, so he was a Jew with a Roman name that was from Africa. There is Lucius of Cyrene, which would have been from northern Africa. There's Menaean, who would have been raised among the Hebrews, among the Hebrew royal people. He would have been with, like, kind of royal Jews, so he was upper class. And then there's Paul, and we know a little bit more about him, but he was a Jewish Roman. And so what we can immediately learn, because we want to learn a ton from the church at Antioch, because they had a lot of really good things going, is that Antioch was a multicultural church where its leaders prioritized prayer, fasting, the voice of the Spirit, and reaching the unreached. Guys, we could learn a lot. We want to be like Antioch. We want to be a church that is led by a diversity of people, but not just for the sake of that, but for the sake of praying, fasting, getting difference of opinions, getting people from all over, at least this city, and then seeing the unreached reached by listening to the Spirit. There is so much that we can learn from the church at Antioch. Jerusalem was the first church, but Antioch was a place that we'll actually find over and over again in Acts because it was a church that was constantly sending out people and a hub for the missions movement that expanded the church. And so they listen to the voice of God and they send out two of their own. They send out Paul and Barnabas. And in verse six, it says, they traveled through the whole island of Cyprus until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elemas, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from faith. And so Paul and Barnabas, they're on mission, and this guy, he wants to hear from them. He wants to hear about the spiritual um, news that they have, uh, but there was something that opposed them. There was a false spirit that opposed them. And so one of the things that I think we need to be aware of, and, and maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but there is a spirit that is so for us. He's the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God. And he wants to bring us into relationship with God. He has the ability to do miracles in and through us. He has the ability to take away and, and start to um, uh, move our bodies less into sin and more into the presence of God. But, and this is so important, we don't talk a lot about this, there is a spirit that is opposing that spirit. And if we don't understand that there's an enemy, then we st a lot of stuff doesn't make sense. Like, why would God do all these awful things? Well, actually, sometimes there's just something that's opposing God that still has some authority in the world for now that is on the move. So a false spirit opposes them. There are spirits that will oppose you, especially 
if you're moving towards God. We shouldn't be confused when we see things that come against us because there was false spirits through a man that opposed Paul and Barnabas. And it says the proconsul was an intelligent man, and he sent for Paul and Barnabas because he wanted to hear the word of God. This is a guy who is intelligent. So the scripture says he's a smart guy, and we know that he is hungry for the supernatural because he has a guy on payroll that's a sorcerer. Like this guy, and, and that sounds good in theory, right? He's smart, and he is hungry for more of the supernatural. Sounds good on paper. However, that's not exactly what we're going after. Because there are spirits that oppose us, we should just be aware. And I'm going to open up a can of worms, and I will not close it. Uh, you'll have to process this either with a house group leader. I'd love to talk more. But we can open up ourselves to spirits that are not God. Can of worms, here it comes. Uh, if you have played with a Ouija board, that is spiritual. It is not spiritual from God. If, uh, and this is, like maybe it's in your family, uh, Freemasons, you can Google it or, or not. Uh, uh, there is, if you dig into like really what's going on, if you have a history of this in your family, it could explain some things. There are things that are spiritual, but they are not of the spirit of Jesus. I, uh, I used to live in Las Vegas and... Um, had these two friends. You met one of them a couple weeks ago. His name's Amari. Two of my best friends, uh, Amari and Rich. And uh, there was this massive church. There still is this massive church in Las Vegas, like 5,000 people. And, uh, and we led a church of about uh, 150. And um, they called us, which is so awesome and a little sad, but they called us because there was a demon-possessed woman in their church, church of 5,000, and they said, look, we don't know what to do with this. And I guess we had a reputation for the demonic, which you can take that or leave it. Uh, but they called us and they said, hey, can you, can you help us with this? And so the three of us go over to this apartment where this lady lived, and we start praying. And gosh, can of worms, I know. And if you're new here, gosh, it's going to get less weird, I promise. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you can open yourself up to things that are not Jesus. Uh, and several times, there's different illustrations. Paul says, don't give the enemy a foothold. Because if you give the enemy a foothold, which could be something really demonic, but let's be honest, most of us, I don't think, are Satan worshiping. But when we allow things that are not God inside of us, like bitterness, that's a really, really common one. When we partner with the enemy in things that are, are not of Jesus, it gives the enemy a foothold. It's almost like we give him permission to come in, and we need to take that permission away. It can be done through simple prayer. Jesus is better. He's more powerful. So with this lady, we're trying to figure out, okay, where did this come from? Because she was so sweet. She's going to church, guys. She's not like worshiping Satan. She's in this church, and, uh, and she's so sweet until we start to pray. <laughs> then it becomes not like the movies, but close. And she starts moving around, and we're talking to her, and then all of a sudden you're talking to something that's not her. And we'll start with the obvious ones. Is it bitterness? You know, any issues with your, like your mom or your dad? Or how's that relationship? And we come to find out. I mean, this woman, she had like uh, thoughts, like almost the, the enemy would move her arms at times because uh, he wanted to kill her. Like everything was about suicide and death. And she couldn't get over it, even though she, in her right mind, didn't want to commit suicide. But there was a spirit of death that was on her. And we found out, she goes to church, it's fine. But she also does tarot cards on the side. And she, it's just a little, and it's so innocent. I mean, right, it's just a deck of cards. doesn't really mean anything. But she partnered with a spirit that was not Jesus. And all of a sudden, she's filled with something that is try, literally trying to kill her. And that's an extreme example. 
but there are spirits that are opposing us. We shouldn't be surprised if when we're moving more in the Holy Spirit that you're finding things come against you and we don't have to be afraid. I mean, that's the big thing. Like, this lady got set free by the grace of God because Jesus is better. But she did allow something to come in that was not of him. And that's why we really believe our spiritual practices matter. What we do, how we pursue spiritual life matters. Not just any old spiritual practice. Being spiritual is kind of in right now. Being of Jesus is a little bit more narrow. Our spiritual practices matter because there is not just one spirit that wants control of your life. Okay, can of worms closed. Talk to your house group leaders. Talk to me. Seriously, if this is like, oh crap, I've got Freemasonry in my family, like, just take care of it. Not a big deal. But they move on, so we will move on. They go to Pisidian Antioch, a different Antioch, not the same one, so confusing. And, uh, and you can read 13 to 52, 53 on your own. Um, but they go, they, uh, Paul preaches most of this as a long sermon in the synagogue. People are intrigued until they're not, and uh, some people stir up trouble. And all of a sudden, they're chased out of town. And it says this in 52, just so we can at least cover this. It says, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So they're chased out of town, and in the midst of being chased out of town, it says that they are filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Who knew that bad things could be happening, and we could have joy and be full of the Holy Spirit? And so they go to a city now called Iconium, and, and this is the first of three cities that is in, I think it's Asia Minor, um, and it's in this area called Galatia. A few years later, Paul writes a letter back to this group of churches, and we called it Galatians. Oh, gosh, we're killing it this morning. <laughs> it's not just me. We're all teaching this morning. And so they go to Iconium, which is in the area of Galatia, and it says, At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, to the Gen Jewish synagogue. There they spoke effectively that a great number of Jews, so effectively, a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So, check this out, so Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. It says that it was tough there. There was some kind of opposition, so they stayed longer. And this just shows, because there was opposition back in um, the place that we just were, uh, Cyprus. <laughs> there was opposition there, and they left. Here there's opposition, and they chose to stay. It just highlights, gosh, and I wish there was an equation to following Jesus. I'd find it, and I would just nail it, type A, a one on the Enneagram. Uh, but there is no equation to following Jesus. There, there's, there's wisdom from a word, but there is no equation. This is why, and Sheridan just shared this, this is why, like, listening to God's voice, when we did that message on presence, listening to his voice is such a big deal here. Because we can find wisdom from the word of God, but there are times when it's right to go, and there are times that it's right to stay. It shows that there is no equation in following Jesus. That's why we love to hear his voice. And then it says in verse 4, and this is my main point this morning, it says, the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. In that division, they actually tried to kill Paul. And, uh, and I, was doing, I usually like read um, the text before I start writing and studying and reading commentaries. And when I read the text, you know, I've read this before, but I was so struck at, um, and I asked the Lord, like, what city church OTR need to hear this week? And I felt like it's this. 
Not super fun. Hopefully, he'll tell me something more exciting next week. But he reminded me that the gospel um, is at times divisive. And, and I read this, and I, I was reminded that the gospel, the news of Jesus, should never leave us feeling neutral. I mean, they, they responded exactly how they're supposed to in Iconium. Some of them were so all in for the gospel, but you don't hear it and say, oh, yeah, that's good for some. Because it is, and this is just the truth, it's hard, but it's divisive by nature. It comes in, and it says, Paul later says that it's the aroma to some, but it's the stench of death to others. And so the gospel comes in, and it divides up a city. Because the gospel should be the most unifying thing in the world. Jesus should be the most unifying person in the world. And we shouldn't be surprised at times if there comes a point of separation because of that. I think this is the most important thing I'm going to say today, so you can tune out after this. But the gospel, we shouldn't be surprised if following Jesus does bring a bit of separation or um, disunity But it also should bring unity. It is both and the same. Jesus said this. He said, uh, I didn't come just to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. And he said, because I've come, this is hard. It's just hard to preach. But he said, because I've come, brother and sister will be turned against each other. Father and son will be turned against each other. That's not the goal, but that's just the reality. Because the news of Jesus is amazing. And it does cause separation at times. And we've divided over such dumb things. Can we like agree on, like, we probably don't need another denomination. We've taken things and we've, especially in the last year, this is why I really don't want to like talk about this because we've seen more dividing than we probably needed to. We've seen ourselves really draw lines in places that probably aren't necessary. Like we could have probably overcome that. We've seen dividing in the church and outside of the church. We don't need another, we probably don't need, we don't need another denomination. I'll just say that. We don't need to divide over more and more things. But what's equally dangerous is to seek unity no matter the cost. Oh, this is tough. But it's equally dangerous to try to unify no matter what it costs. And we want to ask the question, where's the middle? Where's that radical middle? Where does conviction intersect with grace? Because if we're a church with only conviction and no grace, first of all, I'll keep church hopping. We'll find somewhere else. Um, I don't want to be a part of that. You probably don't want to be a part of that either. But if we're a church that is all only grace and we just say, hey, convictions, whatever, and we start to give up things that make us distinctively Jesus people, it sounds so good in theory until you realize you just have a vague, kind of lame form of spirituality. When we start to give up the, the essentials, the in fancy Christian word, the doctrine of following Jesus, when we start to give up some of the things he asked us to do and the ways to behave and the things that we should believe, when we say, oh yeah, we can give that up for the sake of like bringing everyone together, it is equally dangerous. And honestly, if, I mean, if we're honest, nobody wants to be a part of that. We, it sounds good in theory until you get there when you're like, oh, this is just all, everyone, always, and it doesn't actually mean anything to anyone. And so where, and we want to ask the question, where does our conviction, where does conviction of the gospel intersect with the grace that Jesus so prevalently taught? And we've seen both extremes One of the things we like to pursue more than anything else here at City Church is where's the tension? 
And where can we hold the tension? Where can we hold grace and conviction? Uh, I had a friend when we lived in Vegas. Uh, I still have a friend. Uh, we just don't live there anymore. His name's Graham, and he had this massive beard. Uh, he was 20, like, I think I was 24. He was 22 at the time. We hung out all the time, worked for the same church, and he was such, like, a southern bro. And he'd just, like, look at you, and the, the beard was so disarming. He'd be like, bro, Jesus loves you, bro. And you're like, oh, I kind of feel that. <laughs> and uh, awesome, really funny guy. And, uh, and we, not much has changed with me, uh, we would go uh, pretty much weekly to a burrito place called Zaba's. I've just replaced Zaba's with Corito. And, and I'd always get a Diet Coke because, again, not much has changed. But um, this one time, Graham brought me back. Uh, uh, he went and got me a refill of Diet Coke, which if you're new here, you probably still know I love Diet Coke. But that's like, it's the closest equivalent to earth I can find of like relating it to the gospel. And um, don't quote me on that. <laughs> and Graham comes back. He gives me a refill. And I drink it. And I'm like, bro, do you think I'm stupid? I was like, this is Coke. And he's like, actually, bro, <laughs> you are stupid. <laughs> he said, for the last six months, I've been getting your refills really often, and I've been putting a little bit more Coke in your cup mixed with Diet Coke every time. He said, I finally found the threshold. You just drank like three-fourths Coke, one-fourth Diet Coke. <laughs> 30 seconds, Bible teaching aside, greatest prank that's ever been pulled on me. I mean, and it's not a challenge. Don't try to beat it. I don't really want to be top. It was the, the sheer patience and discipline that Graham had totally displayed Jesus. Unbelievable. The way that he patiently every week would just go get me a little bit more Coke. It's hilarious. Where it relates to the darkness of the enemy is this, is that Graham's smart. He knew that if he filled up uh, three-fourths a cup of Coke, I would know. Even half a cup of Coke. I, I would have figured that out. Graham played the long game. He's a smart guy. He played the long game. He, he knew if he could slowly chip away at the taste buds in my mouth, <laughs> he could slowly, uh, eventually, he would have the moment that he had at Zaba's where I call him an idiot, and actually he says, it's you. <laughs> Graham, and Graham's so smart. And the unfortunate thing is the enemy is smarter. The enemy will not come. I mean, tell me if you've been tempted. Actually, not right now. <laughs> if you've been tempted by Satan worship. My guess is probably not. But tell me if you've been tempted to give up little things in your life, whether it's a conviction around Scripture or it's a conviction around Jesus or it's a practice that you have. Tell me if you've been tempted to just make a slight adjustment in your walk with Jesus. Of course you have, because the enemy, like Graham, is playing the long game. The enemy knows if he can slowly chip away at the beliefs and the foundation, and even the practices, the walking with Jesus. He doesn't care if you read a little bit of the Bible, as long as you play with a Ouija board as well. He doesn't care if you have a little bit of church experience, as long as you're slowly chipping away at what a relationship with Jesus really looks like. I think he's in it for the long game, and I don't think the long game is, I got to get everybody to worship me. That doesn't seem to be what he's doing. What he seems to be doing is slowly filling our cup up with a little bit of Coke every time. And the gospel, the good news of the aspartame-filled Diet Coke is slowly going down. <laughs> and all of a sudden, we never noticed it, but now we're left with a little bit of the good stuff and a little bit of something that we never wanted in there to begin with. 
The gospel is so unifying. It should be such a unifying force in our church. And the gospel at times will create separation. So they go to another city in Galatia. It's Lystra. Uh, Paul, he heals a guy that has been lame from, uh, for a long time. Uh, they have this great miracle. And it says, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language. So Paul and Barnabas didn't know what was happening. It's, and they said, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of, Ju- of Zeus, whose temple was outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gate because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard this, they tore their clothes and rushed into the crowd, shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We, too, are human like you. And so we've seen the dangers that Paul and Barnabas encounter through persecution. This is a different kind of danger. This might be actually more prevalent in our lives. We don't have a ton of persecution. This might be the other danger where it's allowing the things that God has given you to puff you up and choose pride. And I think this is a really pivotal moment early on in Paul's ministry because he and Barnabas choose humility. They have this opportunity, and they were still going to worship God. They could have still pointed to Jesus and allowed themselves to be like demigods, and they immediately choose humility. And they say, no, 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 you don't understand. We're just like you. We have the Spirit of God in us, and I believe the conviction came from this. We just preached a message to you, and if you go all in with this, if you actually enter into relationship that we have with Jesus, you can do the same things. You have the same Holy Spirit. Paul and Barnabas knew that they had access to the very same thing, because I believe It seems like this was God's plan all along. He's always wanted all of us to be ministers to him, not some hierarchy, not you got to go through one guy to get to another. In Exodus 19, as he's setting up kind of how Israel's going to relate to him, he says, I want you to be a kingdom of priests. That plan doesn't work because that kingdom of priests uh, rebel against God and choose to not believe him. And so there's now a system set up where you've got to go through one man or through this sacrifice to get to God. And Jesus does away, he fulfills that law, and Peter comes back again in 1 Peter 2.9, he says, hey, remember that plan that God had? That's still here. It's being redeemed. And he said, we are, not just the people he was writing to, we are, the church is a chosen people and a royal priesthood. For you business people out there, I believe that God's plan was a flat org chart. Huh? Come on, C-Sweeters, where are you at? God's plan was a flat org chart. I think that if God had like an office, it would be one of those shared spaces that's really cool. I don't think there'd be a ton of offices and, you know, security guards to get to where the CEO or COO is. There seems to be this empowerment, not just for the pastors or the seminary people or the people that have been walking with God for 50 plus years. There seems to be a Holy Spirit that shows no differentiation for anybody that enters into relationship with him. And that means... This is good news for us. As a new church, a lot of young people, some of us are newer in our faith. That means that we carry the same Holy Spirit. We have the ability to pray for healing and it be done. We have the ability to preach the gospel and people come to know Jesus and enter into relationship with him. We have the ability to seek divine wisdom and believe that God can actually speak to us. We carry, not just some, not just uh, people that have been doing this for a long time, each of us that has a relationship with Jesus carries a kingdom that can change the atmosphere of any room or place that you walk into. That's incredible. Peter wanted to remind us, hey, the plan's back on. We're a kingdom of priests. 
We are a royal priesthood. Also, I think that this best happens, the, the conglomeration, the, the bringing of gifts. In uh, 1 Corinthians 14, it says, when you come together, I want each of you to bring a gift or a word or a tongue or interpretation or a hymn or a song. Um, that best happens, probably not here. We love Sundays, but it best happens in house groups. I know, I'm back, still talking about the same stuff, getting a house group, because that's the area, the living room is the area that we get to all participate and bring in what we have. And we want to be a church that is not person or band uh, centered. We want to be a church that really is empowering each of us to reach our spheres and our influence. So they leave Lystra um, because they actually, uh, they got turned, the crowd, the one that was anointing them as a god, turned really quickly and ended up stoning Paul, left him outside of the, uh, the gates of the city because they thought he was dead. He was so Uh, not stoned, he was so beaten uh, that they assumed he was dead. And they leave him there, he's somehow not. Same crowd that had anointed him king, or God, now is trying to kill him. And you thought cancel culture started in 2020. It's been around for a lot longer than that. It was in Lystra in uh, like 49 AD. So they leave there and they head back to the place that they came. They won't go back to Antioch. This is about one to two years later. It says they returned from there, in uh, verse 21, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true in the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. So interesting. They said, Paul and Barnabas anointed elders for each of them in each church with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. And so Paul and Barnabas, they traveled back the way they came. Most of the places they were chased out, but they did the dangerous thing, and they went back to the the communities of believers that they had started, and they started to now make them churches. And this is so interesting. I might be biased, but it seems like Paul's great strategy for reaching um, the ends of the earth was to start new churches. And we get to, like, live into that plan. As a new church, we get to create what he was creating all throughout Asia Minor, we get to create an outpost for the kingdom. It's awesome. We're doing it in the urban core of Cincinnati. They were doing it in Iconium and Lister because believers had been made there. And then he starts to form churches around that because it seems like he thought the best strategy to reach a new area was to set up one of these outposts for the kingdom. And I was studying um, kind of Paul's strategy, a guy named John Stott, a great theologian, way smarter than me. He said every time that they went to a new place, um, they left a church, and the church had three things. And we can read this all throughout Paul's strategy, but Paul leaves them. It's almost like he had a policy. I'm going to leave you three things uh, before I leave you for good. Number one, he left them apostolic instruction. It's fancy stock language for he left them the gospel. He left them the teaching of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And the church would be way more unifying. I think Paul knew this, but the church would have been way more unifying if he had just left that out. Hey, you don't need, you don't need to believe any certain thing. You can kind of believe whatever, just have a vague sense of spirituality. That would have probably been more unifying. They probably would have not been beaten as much. But he said, no, 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 we've got to have this at the core. We've got to leave this teaching with them. And he preached the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And he said, we've got to hold to this. He also left pastoral oversight. 
bishops, his elders. He left leaders, pastors, uh, uh, multiple over the church in each city. And these were likely both vocational and non-vocational leaders of the church. And he said, I want you guys to lead this church. And he, he said, I want you to make sure you have some kind of doctrinal alignment because uh, if a church believes everything, then really it doesn't believe much. And he said, look, if you're going to lead this church, I need you to have this in, in stone. We need you to ha- make sure that you're guarding this. Because uh, narrow focus, if you read any kind of business book on vision, it's always about like, what's your narrow focus? And Paul said, look, if you're going to be a leader, an elder, a pastor in this church, we need you to make sure that there's alignment around these things. We need you to have the ability to teach that, uh, that theology. We need you to have the ability to teach and instruct God's people. And we need you to care for the church. And that's what Paul does. He leaves uh, pastoral oversight, or what we would call like pastors and elders, which is really exciting. We're in a church, and we're kind of starting that process, or I shouldn't say we're starting. Uh, we're so interested in that process. And I was just this week talking with the guy that is now helping lead our church, a guy named Paul that was here last week. And I was saying, hey, how do, you know, I love that you're like speaking into our church. I feel so safe having a board of people that are like making sure that this church is doing what it should and making sure that I'm kept in check. That's really, really important. But I said, hey, it, I, I want to start that process of seeing people come up from within and lead. And, and so here we are kind of in the middle of what Paul was doing. And the last thing he said is, uh, John Stott said, is that Paul left um, divine faithfulness. He left them with the Holy Spirit. He actually trusted them with something uh, other than himself. He trusted God. It says in verse 23, he committed to them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. And again, with uh, kind of my new awareness of fear and some of the things I fear in my life, this is tough for me. Like, this church is going so well. There's not really much for me to be afraid of, and yet I still find myself myself leaning into, like, what if this goes wrong? This was really good for me to read. Because Paul, if he really wanted to micromanage, he could have just stayed in the city, not plant other churches. But he said, no, I trust God. I trust God, and I trust the people that I've put over that church to keep it moving. Um, I was in a, uh, like a counseling cohort a couple months ago, and we were going through this thing, and um, this, it, it was a lot of us that were there, but then there were some instructors as well. And one person, um, they were kind of working with him, but we were all there. And one person was um, working through, you know, some of the things that he was kind of going through in life. And he came to um, like a theological conundrum, a theological question. And I tried my best to hide what I do for a living, but it came out and uh, and the guy that was leading it, because there were a few leaders and there were a few people participating around, he's like, hey, um, hey, are you going to help him? Aren't you going to tell, like, tell him what the right answer is? And uh, in my flesh, I'm like, man, and I love my job, but most places that I walk into, like regarding City Church, I lead. Like, I, and I love leading. Like Every test I take, it says that I love to lead. But every test I take, it says, actually, sometimes you like to follow. And I was in like follow mode. Also, I hadn't really had much caffeine, probably in a bad mood. I just need to acknowledge like the flesh was real. And this guy was like, hey, you should help him. And a couple things came to mind. One, I'm on vacation. <laughs> Not my job to lead. Like you're the, you're the person that's supposed to be doing this. But the second thing I thought was like, I do know the answer to this question. But what, I've lo- what I loved about that whole experience was I'm not in charge. 
I loved the idea that they had a big picture of where we were going, and they were taking us there, and I didn't, I, I didn't have to try to piece it together. And it felt very freeing to trust a group of people. They knew where this thing was. I could answer this question, but I have no idea what we're doing after this. Do you want him to go there? I could say that, but is, am I going to derail it? That's what I was thinking. And, uh, and what I enjoyed so much about that process was, man, I'm not in charge. Like, you know where we're going, and I just trust. There's almost blind trust, but I trust you guys to take us where we're supposed to go. And this, is relative, this might be relatively unpopular with uh, the individualistic generation that we're in, but isn't it just freeing? Doesn't it sound freeing to just submit to, and that's a tough word, I know, but just to submit to someone who's like better, smarter, more loving, knows the whole plan. Doesn't that just sound freeing? To you? It sounded so freeing to me on a very lesser level of like, I'm just here and you t- I believe that you're gonna take me to a maturity that I don't have. At a higher level, don't we, and I know, so individualistic, we can still you know, dress how we want, but doesn't it just sound a little bit freeing to submit to somebody who is the expert, that has a greater plan, that is smarter than you? I'm sorry, he is. He's more loving than you. He's more kind than you. There's something really freeing about being able to lean in and say, look, you just, you take charge. Or in the words of the theologian, Carrie Underwood, you take the wheel. And he's actually better at it. Because Paul, he traveled 500 miles by sea, 700 miles by land. He was gone one to two years. He was stoned, beaten, rejected. He was betrayed by people that once loved him and then tried to kill him. What could possibly be worth that? That's not a vacation. That's not a sabbatical. And he comes back, it says at the very end of chapter 14, and they considered it joy, the report that came back. What could poss- who could possibly be worth that kind of celebration? And it's this. It's that Paul knew, we know, that there is this mind-blowing opportunity to have a relationship with the one who is better, smarter, more loving, and stronger than you are. We have, a relation- we have the mind-blowing opportunity to enter into a relationship with the one that is just better than we are, the expert. And Paul knew that he had to get that message out no matter what it cost him because it was such a freeing message for him. And the bad news for anybody that's like a good person in here is you're just not good enough. I know, so offensive. I'm so sorry. But if you're a good person and you're leaning into that and saying, look, I think do more good than bad, scale checks out. I'm so sorry. That is not how it works. You have to be perfect to find your way back into relationship with God. But the good news, if you're kind of a messed up person, if you're kind of bad, if you feel like you're not having it all together, the good news to you is, gosh, you're still, you're not even close to bad enough. There is actually no too bad to not come back into relationship with this God. And Paul was so convicted of that message. He went to the worst of the worst and probably some good people as well. And he said, you've got to be made right with God. You have the opportunity, not just to avoid hell later, you have this opportunity to enter into a relationship and it's the life that you've always wanted. And following Jesus is such a process, but it's a process that can start now. Every process has a beginning moment. And if you're not positive 
that that's something that you've done, let's do it. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. We're not going to have, like, I want you to make in your mind, the band's going to come up. We're going to go into worship. I want to worship the Jesus that makes this a reality. But I want you to ask the question, am I sure, like, am I sure I've actually submitted to that person? If you don't like that language, are you sure that you have given your life to somebody else to let them take charge, to let them take the wheel? Guys, it was so freeing in that counseling experience for me to submit to an expert. And that is just a glimpse of what it's like to follow Jesus. It's not just praying a prayer and making sure your sin's taken care of. It is entering into a relationship with the greatest person to ever live. And he's still alive and he's beckoning us into deeper and deeper relationship with him. And so we're going to go into worship, and here's the question I want to ask. This is good. This is good news. This isn't something somber, and maybe you're a bit convicted, but isn't this man worth going all in for? Isn't this person worth going all in for? I just want you to ask. You've been a Christian for 30 years, or you're not quite sure that you follow Jesus. The question this morning is, isn't this a man that's worth going all in for? Are you willing to trust somebody else with the most precious thing that you have, your life? Are you willing to submit to somebody who is bigger, stronger, better, more loving? Are you willing to submit to the expert? And so um, we're going to worship. And, uh, and the exciting thing is we get to worship the one that has come to us. We get to worship the one that made it possible to know him. We get to worship Jesus who saw the gap that was between us and man and said, look, you're not too bad to get there, but you're also not good enough to get there. Let me bridge it. And Jesus gave up his life and then defeated death through the resurrection so that we can have a relationship with him. Let's remind ourselves of that truth afresh this morning.